7. Poverty and old age, nay, death itself, considering the shortness of their duration and the advantage we may reap from them, do not deserve the name of evils. A good mind may bear up under them with fortitude, with indolence, and with cheerfulness of heart. The tossing of a tempest does not discompose him, which he is sure will bring him to a joyful harbor. A man who uses his best endeavors to live according to the dictates of virtue and right reason, has two perpetual sources of cheerfulness, in the consideration of his own nature and of that being on whom he has a dependence. If he looks into himself, he cannot but rejoice in that existence which is so lately bestowed upon him, and which, after millions of ages, will be still new and still in its beginning. How many self-congratulations naturally arise in the mind when it reflects on this its entrance into eternity? when it takes a view of those improvable faculties which in a few years, and even at its first setting out, have made so considerable a progress, and which will be still receiving an increase of perfection, and consequently an increase of happiness. The consciousness of such a being spreads a perpetual diffusion of joy through the soul of a virtuous man, and makes him look upon himself every moment as more happy than he knows how to conceive. The second source of cheerfulness to a good mind is its consideration of that being on whom we have our dependence, and in whom, though we behold him as yet but in the first faint discoveries of his perfections, we see everything that we can imagine as great, glorious, and amiable. We find ourselves everywhere upheld by his goodness and surrounded with an immensity of love and mercy. In short, we depend upon a being whose power qualifies him to make us happy by an infinity of means whose goodness and truth engage him to make those happy who desire it of him, and whose unchangeableness will secure us in this happiness to all eternity. Such considerations, which everyone should perpetually cherish in his thoughts, will banish from us all that secret heaviness of heart which unthinking men are subject to when they lie under no real affliction, all that anguish which we may feel from any evil that actually oppresses us, to which I may likewise add those little cracklings of murder and folly that are after to betray virtue and support it, and establish in us such an even and cheerful temper, as makes us pleasing to ourselves, to those with whom we converse, and to him whom we are made to please. Addison, Stony Cross. This is the place where King William Rufus was accidentally shot by Sir Walter Tyrrell. There has been much controversy on the details of this catastrophe, but the following conclusions, given in the pictorial history of England, appear to be just that the king was shot by an arrow in the new forest, that his body was abandoned and then hastily interred, are facts perfectly well authenticated, but some doubts may be entertained as to the precise circumstances attending his death, notwithstanding their being minutely related by writers who were living at the time, or who flourished in the course of the following century, Sir Walter Tyrrell afterwards swore, in France, that he did not shoot the arrow, but he was, probably, anxious to relieve himself from the odium of killing a king, even by accident, it is quite possible, indeed, that the event did not arise from chance, and that Tyrrell had no part in it, the remorseless ambition of Henry might have had recourse to murder, or the avenging shaft might have been sped by the desperate hand of some Englishman, tempted by a favorable opportunity and the traditions of the place, but the most charitable construction island that the party were intoxicated with the wine they had drunk at Malwood Keep, and that, in the confusion consequent on drunkenness, the king was hit by a random arrow, in that part of the forest near Stony Cross, at a short distance from Castle Malwood, formerly stood in oak, 
which tradition affirmed was the tree against which the arrow glanced that caused the death of Rufus. Charles I.I. directed the tree to be encircled by a paling, it has disappeared, but the spot whereon the tree grew is marked by a triangular stone, about five feet high, erected by Lord Delaware, upwards of a century ago. The stone has since been faced with an iron casting of the following inscription upon the three sides, here stood the oak tree on which an arrow, shot by Sir Walter Tyrrell at a stag, glanced and struck in William I.I., surnamed Rufus, on the breast, of which stroke he instantly died, on the 2nd of August, 1100, King William I.I., surnamed Rufus, being slain, as before related, was laid in a cart belonging to one Perkess, and drawn from hence to Winchester, and buried in the cathedral church of that city, that where an event so memorable had happened might not be raft or be unknown, this stone was set up by John Lord Delaware, who had seen the tree growing in this place, and of 1745, Stony Cross is a favorite spot for picnic parties in the summer. It lies seven miles from Ringwood, on a wide slope among the woods. From the road above, splendid views over the country present themselves. Giuliani, the spearman heard the bugle sound, and cheerily smiled the morn, and many a branch, and many a hound, attend Llewellyn's horn, and still he blew a louder blast, and gave a louder cheer. Come, Gellert, why art thou the last Llewellyn's horn to hear? Oh. Where does faithful Jeller roam the flower of all his race? So true, so brave a lamb at home, a lion in the chase, that day Llewellyn little loved the chase of heart or hair, and scant and small the booty proved, for Jeller was not there, and pleased Llewellyn homeward hide, when, near the portal seat, his truant Jeller he espied, bounding his lord to greet, but when he gained the castle door, aghast the chieftain stood, the hound was smeared with bouts of gore his lips and fangs ran blood. Llewellyn gazed with wild surprise, and used such looks to meet, his favorite checked his joyful guise, and crouched and licked his feet. Onward in haste Llewellyn passed and on went Jeller too, and still where'er his eyes were cast, fresh blood bouts shocked his view. Though single quarter turned single quote d his infant's bed he found, the blood-stained cover rent, and all around the walls and ground with recent blood besprent. He called his child, no voice replied, he searched with terror wild, blood, blood, he found on every side, but nowhere found the child, hell hound, by thee my child's devoured, the frantic father cried, and to the hilt his vengeful sword he plunged in Jellert's side, his suppliant, as to earth he fell, no pity could impart, but still his Jellert's dying yell passed heavy o'er his heart, aroused by Jellert's dying yell, some slumberer wakened nigh, what words the parent's joy can tell, to hear his infant cry, concealed beneath a mangled heap, his hurried search had missed, all glowing from his rosy sleep, his chair a boy he kissed, nor scratch had he, nor harm, nor dread, but the same couch beneath lay a great wolf, all torn and dead tremendous still in death, ah, what was then Llewellyn's pain, for now the truth was clear, the gallant hound the wolf had slain to save Llewellyn's heir, vain, Vain was all Llewellyn's woe, best of thy kind. Adieu, the frantic deed which laid below. This heart shall ever rue. And now a gallant tomb they raise, with costly sculpture decked, and marbles, storied with his praise. Poor Jellert's bones protect. Here never could the spearman pass, or forester, and moved. Here off the tear besprinkled grass Llewellyn's sorrow proved, and here he hung his horn and spear, and oft, as evening fell, 
in fancy's piercing sounds would hear poor Gellert's dying yell. W. Spencer, The Great Wall of China, the important feature which the Great Wall makes in the map of China, entitles this vast barrier to be considered in a geographical point of view, as it bounds the whole north of China along the frontiers of three provinces. It was built by the first universal monarch of China, and finished about 205 years before Christ, the period of its completion is an historical fact, as authentic as any of those which the annals of ancient kingdoms have transmitted to posterity. It was built to defend the Chinese Empire from the incursions of the Tartars, and is calculated to be 1500 miles in length. The rapidity with which this work was completed is as astonishing as the wall itself, for it is said to have been done in five years, by many millions of laborers, the emperor pressing three men out of every ten, in his dominions, for its execution, for about the distance of 200 leagues, it is generally built of stone and brick, with strong square towers, sufficiently near for mutual defense, and having besides, at every important pass, a formidable and well-built fortress, in many places, in this line and extent, the wall is double, and even triple, but from the province of Kensa to its eastern extremity, it is nothing but a terrace of earth, of which the towers on it are also constructed, the great wall, which has now, even in its best parts, numerous breaches, is made of two walls of brick and masonry, not above a foot and a half in thickness, and generally many feet apart, the interval between them is filled up with earth, making the whole appear like solid masonry and brickwork, for six or seven feet from the earth, these are built of large square stones, the rest is of blue brick, the mortar used in which is of excellent quality, the wall itself averages about 20 feet in height, 25 feet in thickness at the base, which diminishes to 15 feet at the platform, where there is a parapet wall, the top is gained by stairs and inclined planes, the towers are generally about 40 feet square at the base, diminishing to 30 feet at the top, and are, including battlements, 37 feet in height, at some spots the towers consist of two stories, and are thus much higher, the wall is in many places carried over the tops of the highest and most rugged rocks, and one of these elevated regions is 5,000 feet above the level of the sea. Near each of the gates is a village or town, and at one of the principal gates, which opens on the road towards India, is situated Suningfu, a city of large extent and population. Here the wall is said to be sufficiently broad at the top to admit six horsemen abreast, who might without inconvenience ride a race. The esplanade on its top is much frequented by the inhabitants, and the stairs which give ascent are very broad and convenient. The tombs of Paul and Virginia, this delicious retreat in the island of Mauritius has no claims to the celebrity it has attained. It is not the burial place of Paul and Virginia, and the author of Recollections of the Mauritius thus endeavors to dispel the illusion connected with the spot, after having allowed his imagination to depict the shades of Paul and Virginia hovering about the spot where their remains repose after, having pleased himself with the idea that he had seen those celebrated tombs, and given a sight to the memory of those faithful lovers, separated in life, but in death united after all this waste of sympathy, he learns at last that he has been under a delusion the whole time that no Virginia was there interred and that it is a matter of doubt whether there ever existed such a person as Paul. What a pleasing illusion is then dispelled. How many romantic dreams, inspired by the perusal of Street Pierre's tale, are doomed to vanish when the truth is ascertained. The fact island that these tombs have been built to gratify the eager desire which the English have always evinced to behold such interesting mementos, 
formerly only one was erected, but the proprietor of the place, finding that all the English visitors, on being conducted to this, as the tomb of Virginia, all was asked to see that of Paul also, determined on building a similar one, to which he gave that appellation, many have been the visitors who have been gratified, consequently, by the conviction that they had looked on the actual burial place of that unfortunate pair, these tombs are scribbled over with the names of the various persons who have visited them, together with verses and pathetic ejaculations and sentimental remarks, St. Pierre's story of the lovers is very prettily written, and his description of the scenic beauties of the island are correct, although not even his pen can do full justice to them, but there is little truth in the tale. It is said that there was indeed a young lady sent from the Mauritius to France for education, during the time that Monsieur de la Bourdonnais was governor of the colony that her name was Virginia, and that she was shipwrecked in the St. Garen. I heard something of a young man being attached to her, and dying of grief for her loss, but that part of the story is very doubtful. The Bay of the Tomb, the Point of Endeavor, the Isle of Ember, and the Cape of Misfortune, still bear the same names and are pointed out as the memorable spots mentioned by St. Pierre. Oh, gentle story of the Indian Isle. I loved thee in my lonely childhood well, on the seashore. One day's last purple smile slept on the waters, and their hollow swell and dying cadence lent a deeper spell unto thine ocean pictures. Midst thy palms and strange bright birds my fancy joy to dwell, and watch the southern cross through midnight calms, and track the spicy woods. Yet more I bless thy vision of sweet love kind trustful, true lighting the citron groves a heavenly guest with such pure smiles as paradise once knew, even then my young heart wept o'er this world's power, to reach and blight that holiest Eden flower, Mrs. Hemmins, the M-A-N-G-O-U-S-D, the Mangus, or if Newmans, are natives of the hotter parts of the old world, the species being respectively African and Indian, in their general form and habits they bear a great resemblance to the ferrets, being bold, active, and sanguinary, and in relenting destroyers of birds, reptiles, and small animals, which they take by surprise, darting rapidly upon them, beautiful, cleanly, and easily domesticated, they are often kept tame in the countries they naturally inhabit, for the purpose of clearing the houses of vermin, though the poultry yard is not safe from their incursions, the Egyptian mangus is a native of North Africa, and was deified for its services by the ancient Egyptians, snakes, lizards, birds, crocodiles newly hatched, and especially the eggs of crocodiles, constitute its food, it is a fierce and daring animal, and glides with sparkling eyes towards its prey, which it follows with snake-like progression, often it watches patiently for hours together, in one spot, waiting the appearance of a mouse, rat, or snake, from its lurking place, in a state of domestication it is gentle and affectionate, and never wanders from the house or returns to an independent existence, but it makes itself familiar with every part of the premises, exploring every hole and corner, inquisitively peeping into boxes and vessels of all kinds, and watching every movement or operation. The Indian mangus is much less than the Egyptian, and of a beautiful freckled gray. It is not more remarkable for its graceful form and action, than for the display of its singular instinct for hunting for and stealing eggs from which it takes the name of egg-breaker, Mr. Bennett, in his account of one of the mangusts kept in the tower, says, that on one occasion it killed no fewer than a dozen full-grown rats, which were loosened to it in a room sixteen feet square, in less than a minute and a half, another species of the mangust, 
found in the island of Java, inhabiting the large teak forests, is greatly admired by the natives for its agility. It attacks and kills serpents with excessive boldness. It is very expert in burrowing in the ground, which process it employs ingeniously in the pursuit of rats. It possesses great natural sagacity, and, from the peculiarities of its character, it willingly seeks the protection of man. It is easily tamed, and in its domestic state is very docile and attached to its master, whom it follows like a dog. It is fond of caresses, and frequently places itself erect on its hind legs, regarding everything that passes with great attention. It is of a very restless disposition, and always carries its food to the most retired place to consume it, and is very cleanly in its habits, but it is exclusively carnivorous and destructive to poultry, employing great artifice in surprising chickens. Culloden, Culloden Moor The battlefield lies eastward about a mile from Culloden House, after an hour's climbing up the heath Bray, through a scattered plantation of young trees, clambering over stone dikes and jumping over moorland rills and springs, oozing from the black turf and streaking its somber surface with stripes of green. We found ourselves on the tableland of the moor abroad, bare level, garnished with a few black huts, and patches of scanty oats, won by patient industry from the waste. We should premise, however, that there are some fine glimpses of rude mountain scenery in the course of the ascent. The immediate vicinage of Culloden House is well wooded, the frith spreads finely in front, the Rothshire hills assume a more varied and commanding aspect, and Ben Levi's towers proudly over his compeers, with a bold pronounced character. Ships were passing and repassing before us in the frith. The birds were singing blithely overhead, and the sky was without a cloud. Under the cheering influence of the Sunday stretched on the warm, blooming, and fragrant heather, we gazed with no common interest and pleasure on this scene. On the moor all is bleak and dreary long, flat, wide, and varying, the folly and madness of Charles and his followers, in risking a battle on such ground, with jaded, and equal forces, half-starved, and deprived of rest the preceding night, has often been remarked, and is at one glance perceived by the spectator, the royalist artillery and cavalry had full room to play, for not an oil or bush was there to mar their murderous aim, mountains and fastnesses were on the right, within a couple of hours journey, but a fatality had struck the infatuated bands of Charles, dissension and discord were in his councils, and a power greater than that of Cumberland had marked them for destruction. But a truce to politics, the grave has closed over victors and vanquished, Culloden's dread echoes are hushed on the moors, and who would awaken them with the voice of reproach? Uppered over the dust of the slain, the most interesting memorials of the contest are the green grassy mounds which mark the graves of the slain Highlanders and which are at once distinguished from the black heath around by the freshness and richness of their verdure. One large pit received the Frasers, and another was dug for the Macintoshes. Highland Notebook. Athens. The most striking object in Athens is the Acropolis, or citadel a rock which rises abruptly from the plain, and is crowned with the Parthenon. This was a temple dedicated to the goddess Minerva, and was built of the hard white marble of Cantalicus. It suffered from the ravages of war between the Turks and Venetians, and also more recently in our own time, the remnant of the sculptures which decorated the pediments, with a large part of the frieze, and other interesting remains, are now in what is called the Elgin Collection of the British Museum. During the embassy of Lord Elgin at Constantinople, 
he obtained permission from the Turkish government to proceed to Athens for the purpose of procuring casts from the most celebrated remains of sculpture and architecture which still existed at Athens, besides models and drawings which he made. His lordship collected numerous pieces of Athenian sculpture in statues, capitals, cornices, and sea, and these he very generously presented to the English government, thus forming a school of Grecian art in London, to which there does not at present exist a parallel. In making this collection he was stimulated by seeing the destruction into which these remains were sinking, through the influence of Turkish barbarism. Some fine statues in the Parthenon had been pounded down for mortar on account of their affording the whitest marble within reach, and this mortar was employed in the construction of miserable huts. At one period the Parthenon was converted into a powder magazine by the Turks, and in consequence suffered severely from an explosion in 1656, which carried away the roof of the right wing. At the close of the late Greek war Athens was in a dreadful state, being little more than a heap of ruins. It was declared by a royal ordinance of 1834 to be the capital of the new kingdom of Greece, and in the march of that year the king laid the foundation stone of his palace there, in the hill of Areopagus, where sat that famous tribunal. We may still discover the steps cut in the rock by which it was ascended, the seats of the judges, and opposite to them those of the accuser and accused. This hill was converted into a burial place for the Turks, and is covered with their tombs. Ancient of Days August Athena, where, where are thy men of might thy grand in soul, gone, glimmering through the dream of things that were first in the race that led to glory's goal, they won, and passed away, is this the whole, a schoolboy's tale, the wonder of an hour, the warrior's weapon and the sophist's stole are sought in vain, and o'er each moldering tower, dim with the mist of years, gray flits the shade of power, here let me sit, upon this massy stone, the marble columns yet in shaken base, here, son of Saturn, was thy favorite throne mightiest of many such, hence let me trace the latent grandeur of thy dwelling place, it may not be nor it can fancies I restore what time hath labored to deface, yet these proud pillars, claiming side, and move the Moslem sits the light Greek carols by, Byron, the Isles of Greece, the Isles of Greece, the Isles of Greece, where burning Sappho loved and sung where grew the arts of war and peace, where Delos rose and Phoebus sprung, eternal summer gilds them yet, but all except their sun is set, the scion and the tin muse, the hero's harp, the lover's lute, have found the fame your shores refuse, their place of birth alone is mute, to sounds which echo further west than your sire's islands of the blast, the mountains look on Marathon and Marathon looks on the sea, and musing there an hour alone, I dreamed that Greece might still be free, for standing on the Persian's grave, I could not deem myself a slave. A king sat on the rocky brow, which looks o'er seaborne salamis, and ships by thousands lay below, and men in nations all were his. He counted them at break of day and when the sun set. Where were they? And where were they? And where art thou, my country? On thy voiceless shore the heroic lays tuneless now the heroic bosom beats no more and must thy lyre, so long divine, degenerate into hands like mine, tis something, in the dearth of fame, though linked among a fettered race, to feel at least a patriot's shame, even as I sing, suffuse my face, for what is left the poet here, for Greeks a blush for Greece a tear, must we but weep our days more blessed, must we but blush, our fathers bled earth, render back from out thy breast a remnant of our Spartan dead, of the three hundred grant but three, 
to make a new thermopylae. What? Silent still? And silent all? Ah! No! The voices of the dead sound like a distant torrent's fall, and answer, let one living head but one arise, we come, we come, tis but the living who are dumb, in vain in vain, strike other chords, fill high the cup with Samyan wine, leave battles to the Turkish hordes, and shed the blood of Cyrus vine, hark, rising to the ignoble call how answers each bold bacchanal, you have the Pyrrhic dance as yet, where is the Pyrrhic phalanx gone, of two such lessons, why forget the nobler and the manlier one? You have the lepers Cadmus gave think ye he meant them for a slave. Fill high the bowl with Samyang wine. We will not think of themes like these. It made an Acrian song divine. He served but served Polycrates a tyrant. But our masters then were still at least our countrymen. The tyrant of the Chersomes was freedom's best and bravest friend that tyrant was Miltiades. Oh! That the present hour would lend another despot of the kind. Such chains as his word are sure to bind. Fill high the bowl with Samyang wine. On Suli's rock and Purvis shore exists the remnant of a line such as the Doric mothers bore, and there, perhaps, some seed is sown. The Heraclidian blood might own. Trust not for freedom to the Franks they have a kin who buys and sells, in native swords and native ranks. The only hope of courage dwells, but Turkish force and Latin fraud would break your shield, however broad. Fill high the bowl with Samyang wine. Our virgins dance beneath the shade. I see their glorious black eyes shine, but gazing on each glowing maid, my own the burning tear drop laves. To think such breasts must suckle slaves. Place me on Sunium's marble steep, where nothing, save the waves, and I may hear our mutual murmurs weep. There's one like let me sing and die. A land of slaves shall ne'er be mine. Dash down yon cup of Samyang wine. Myron, the siege of Antioch. Bagasahan, the Turkish prince, or Amir of Antioch, had under his command an Armenian of the name of Phyrus, whom he had entrusted with the defense of the tower on that part of the city wall which overlooked the passes of the mountains. Bohemund, by means of a spy, who had embraced the Christian religion, and to whom he had given his own name at baptism, kept up a daily communication with this captain, and made him the most magnificent promises of reward if he would deliver up his post to the crusaders. Whether the proposal was first made by Bohemund or by the Armenian, is uncertain, but that a good understanding soon existed between them is undoubted, and a night was fixed for the execution of the project. Bohemund communicated the scheme to Godfrey and the Count of Toulouse, with the stipulation that, if the city were to one, he, as the soul of the enterprise, should enjoy the dignity of Prince of Antioch. The other leaders hesitated, ambition and jealousy prompted them to refuse their aid in furthering the views of the intriguer. More mature consideration decided them to acquiesce, and 700 of the bravest knights were chosen for the expedition, the real object of which, for fear of spies, was kept a profound secret from the rest of the army. Everything favored the treacherous project of the Armenian captain, who, on his solitary watchtower, received due intimation of the approach of the crusaders. The night was dark and stormy, not a star was visible above, and the wind howled so furiously as to overpower all other sounds. The rain fell in torrents, and the watchers on the towers adjoining to that of Phyrus could not hear the tramp of the armed knights for the wind, nor see them for the obscurity of the night and the dismalness of the weather. When within bowshot of the walls, Bohemund sent forward an interpreter to confer with the Armenian. The latter urged them to make haste and seize the favorable interval, as armed men, with lighted torches, 
patrolled the battlements every half hour, and at that instant they had just passed, the chiefs were instantly at the foot of the wall, Firas let down a rope, Bohemund attached to it a ladder of hides, which was then raised by the Armenian, and held while the knights mounted, a momentary fear came over the spirits of the adventurers, and everyone hesitated, at last Bohemund, encouraged by Firas from above, ascended a few steps on the ladder, and was followed by Godfrey, Count Robert of Flanders, and a number of other knights, as they advanced, others pressed forward, until their weight became too great for the ladder, which, breaking, precipitated about a dozen of them to the ground, where they fell one upon the other, making a great clatter with their heavy coats of mail, for a moment they thought all was lost, but the wine made so loud a howling, as it swept in fierce gusts through the mountain gorges, and the Orontes, swollen by the rain, rushed so noisily along, that the guards heard nothing, the ladder was easily repaired, and the knights ascended, two at a time, and reached the platform in safety, when sixty of them had thus ascended, the torch of the coming patrol was seen to gleam at the angle of the wall, hiding themselves behind a buttress, they awaited his coming in breathless silence, as soon as he arrived at arm's length, he was suddenly seized, and before he could open his lips to raise an alarm, the silence of death closed them up forever, they next descended rapidly the spiral staircase of the tower, and, opening the portal, admitted the whole of their companions, Raymond of Toulouse, who, cognizant of the whole plan, had been left behind with the main body of the army, heard at this instant the signal horn, which announced that an entry had been effected, and advancing with his legions, the town was attacked from within and from without. Imagination cannot conceive a scene more dreadful than that presented by the devoted city of Antioch on that night of horror. The crusaders fought with a blind fury, which fanaticism and 